Welcome back, Bible readers. This is the Rooted Podcast, and this is week number 28. And this week we'll be covering Psalm 120 through Proverbs chapter 6. And so we're going to continue working through the Psalms, and we'll actually get into the Proverbs this week. But we last left off at Psalm 120. Now, Psalm 120 through 134 are termed songs of ascent. And they're called this because the Israelites sung them as they traveled from their homes and they ascended to Jerusalem for their annual feast. And so Psalm 120 reminds us that there are times in our lives when we long for peace. But those around us seem to be bent on bringing strife into our lives. And so we must remember, as this psalm reminds us, that in and through the presence of God is the only way we will experience peace because peace is something that only is given through that presence of God. Peace is also a reoccurring theme in these Psalms of Ascent as we work our way through them. Now, Psalm 121 tells us that life is a journey, and along the way we may face many difficulties. But these difficulties can be either stumbling blocks or stepping stones. And what was true back when the psalm was written is as true today, because in the Lord we have all the help we need to navigate the mountains of life. And six times in this psalm, We are told that the Lord watches over us. He is the one who protects us. Even when we are sleeping and resting, He is not. He is watching over us. And so the mountains of life are not barriers to His presence, but places where we experience His watchful care until we arrive at that final destination of heaven. Psalm 122 begins with a joyful arrival in Jerusalem and then celebrates the significance of this great city. You know, today we need not make pilgrimages to Jerusalem in order to experience the Lord's presence because we are indwelt by His very Spirit, by the Holy Spirit. We, however, can and should rejoice daily that we have access to the presence of God at any time. Isn't that a wonderful thing? Now, Psalm 123 is a very brief psalm that teaches us the simplicity and power of a heartfelt prayer to God for help. It's the posture of our souls and not our bodies that God responds to. And sometimes the smallest and most simple prayer is the most powerful one. Psalm 124, David reminds the people that God had, that had God not been on their side in battles that they faced, the nation of Israel might have become extinct or assimilated into other pagan nations around them. Israel's enemies had attacked her viciously many times in her history, but God preserved the Israelites. God was on the side of the Israelites, and he is also on our side as a believer. We can say, as Romans 8.31 says, no one can stand against us. Psalm 125 refers to those who trust in the Lord in a variety of ways. The mountains surrounding Jerusalem were an aspect of the city's natural defenses. So the Lord was and is the defense of his people. While the Lord may use external means to protect and deliver us, this psalm teaches us to put our trust in the Lord himself and not in those very means that he uses. Psalm 126 is yet another reminder that the way we can overcome our present adversity is to remember to learn from the past. Psalm 127 reminds us that even believers in Christ need to recognize that we are never self-made people. We owe all that we possess to God's providence and God's grace. Consequently, though, we should be careful to avoid the trap of depending totally on ourselves for all we need in this life. We should rather trust God as we work and acknowledge His good gifts. Psalm 128 teaches us what Psalm 112 earlier taught us. A life of blessing is experienced by those who fear the Lord. The fear of the Lord includes a number of aspects, but here the focus is on following His ways. To fear the Lord is to live in keeping with the principles that He has revealed to us through His Word. Psalm 129 reminds us, 
that because enemies will continue to oppose and oppress us, we should be careful to daily thank God for past deliverances and safekeeping in the future. Psalm 130 is a desperate cry for God to show mercy to his people. But today we too can call out to him in the deep of our own afflictions. We can find encouragement in the fact that God has forgiven us all of our sins, past, present, and future. And as we look forward to the one day of our complete redemption when we see him face to face. Now Psalm 131 is a short and a powerful one. The problem with many of us is that we have grown old without growing up. We still need to be weaned. The psalm says, God's goal for your life is maturity and his method for maturity is weaning. And he has to wean us away from things we think are important. Weaning is not losing something, but gaining something. Likewise, God has to take things away from our lives, not because they are bad, but because they keep us from focusing on his best for us. Psalm 132 tells us that David's dream was to build a temple for the Lord. And we have already come... um, to this point before in Kings or passages that talk about David's desire to build the temple. Well, here we find out that David was disappointed at first when the Lord told him no, but he accepted the Lord's will here. You know what he did after this? The next thing he did is he helped the next generation to build the temple. David provided all the preparations. You know, we we may not fulfill all of our plans and ambitions in life, but we can do the next best thing. Help somebody else meet their goals. Let's be more concerned with God's glory than with who gets the Psalm 133 is about unity. And as believers, we are one body and dwelt by one spirit, having one Lord and one Father. We should daily strive to maintain the unity of the spirit, asking God to help us be a part of the answer, not the problem. Now, Psalm 134 ends the Psalms of Ascent, and whether you are in the sunshine or in darkness, whether you are serving on the day shift or the night shift, remember that you are serving the Lord, because He never slumbers and He never sleeps. He hears your prayer and prays at all times. Psalm 135 tells us to praise the Lord, and the psalmist gives us a list of reasons he wishes us to do that, because he has chosen Israel to reveal himself to the world, because he is supreme over gods and idols, because he is powerful and rules from above with authority, and because of the mighty acts he has done on behalf of his people. The psalmist gives us ample reasons to praise the Lord, and there are many more that we could add to the list from our own personal lives. Psalm 136 is a psalm that is shouting to us to give thanks to the Lord. The phrase and words are repeated over and over again to the point where all who read should understand the main message of this psalm is to give thanks. But the reason why we are to give thanks to the Lord is for his unfailing love, because it's his faithful love that underlies all of God's mighty works. And it's also his faithful love that endures forever, as the psalm says. Psalm 137 reminds us that when Jerusalem was destroyed and Israel was taken into captivity by Babylon, the nation of Israel seemed to have lost all hope. They thought that God had forgotten them or abandoned them because of their disobedience. And we too, when experiencing God's discipline for sins, feel sorry. Sometimes that discipline cuts us off from the blessings of worship and the joy it brings. And it's always appropriate to ask God for forgiveness and for him to remain faithful to his promises. Psalm 138 has a really good verse. Verse 2 is particularly powerful when it says, Your promises are backed by all the honor of your name. This means that everything that God 
promises, all of his promises are supported by who he is. And since we know from the scripture who he is and what he has done for us, then we also know that he will always keep his promises. There's a great message of hope here, a great message of assurance and peace in the words that God will always keep his promises. And then in verse 8 is also an equally powerful verse when it says, the Lord will work out his plans for my life. Isn't that an encouraging verse? He is faithful even when we are not. Now Psalm 139 tells us that relationships are a deep longing of the human heart. To know and to be known and loved is the passion of mankind's soul. The word know shows up many times in this psalm, reminding us that God knows us better than anyone. He knew us before we were even conceived. This can bring great peace into our lives because if there is anyone who we want to know us and have a deep relationship with us, it's him. We can't hide from him. We need to learn from him. And there is much he has to teach us. Now, Psalm 140, we can often look at our surroundings, our present trials, our enemies, those who are set on pushing us to fail. In spite of these tendencies, keeping our faith focused on praising him empowers us to live strong in the present instead of dwelling and looking at all those failures that the enemy is trying to push against us. Psalm 141 reminds us that though the troubles of this life may seem endless to us, we find in this psalm the courage to overcome these troubles in light that Jesus is our sovereign Lord. He is our refuge and constant companion that protects us. Psalm 142 is a specific psalm that David composed while in a cave, hiding from Saul who was pursuing him. And when we feel overwhelmed, as no doubt David did during this time, we should look to the Lord for guidance. David exclaims, no one else cares about me except you, Lord. What a true statement. People will always fail us, but the Lord never will. Psalm 143, and from this psalm we learn that we are secure in God, even if at times we feel overwhelmed and desperate, we have the God-given freedom to be honest with the Lord and plead with Him to act quickly on our behalf. This psalm combines elements of humility with appreciation for God's character. You know, we have the freedom to go to the Father with whatever petitions that we might have. We have that unfettered access to Him. Now, Psalm 144 reminds us of a mystery. And this mystery, it says, is too deep for us to explain, but it's not too deep for us to experience. The mystery I'm talking about is that God should pay attention to us, should actually notice us. <laughs> we are mere mortals who are frail and made of dust. Why would God want anything to do with us? We may never understand why God took notice of us, but we know that his son came to die because of his love for us, and we should worship and praise the Lord for that. Now, Psalm 145 is an acrostic psalm. This one is especially full of praise to God. In the psalm, David praised God for his powerful acts, for an everlasting kingdom, and for his response to those who pray to him. It's a good to remember that everything that the Lord does is right, and kindness also marks everything he does, although we may not view it from our perspective as kindness. And this psalm is a great catalog of reasons to praise God. And like the other acrostic psalms, it's a model for us to use in recalling many of the things in recalling many of the things about God for which we should Psalm 146 exhorts us to trust in the Lord rather than placing our trust in human beings even if those human beings are very powerful people this particular psalm gives three reasons why we can place our trust in the Lord because he is the creator 
because he is the redeemer and because he is the king forever. As we trust our creator, redeemer, and king, we experience him as our God who gives wisdom and power and compassion. Psalm 147 opens like the last few psalms with a call to praise. This psalm seems to have in view the restoration of the Jewish people as they returned from exile and rebuilt Jerusalem. The people praise God for his restoration. They can also praise God for his work in creation, for his support against the enemy, for his provision, and for his governance over all things by his simple words. Psalm 148 is a call to the whole universe to praise the Lord. Heavens are called to praise him, and the earth is called to bless him for exalting the Jewish people. Psalm 149 reminds us that God has created and redeemed us for glory, and he has called us to bring others into that experience of glory. It's a helpful reminder that praising God does not just involve our lips, it must also involve obeying him with our lives or our actions. Now, Psalm 150 is a great finish to the collection of the Psalms, and it also shows us that praising of the Lord can involve instruments of all kinds. In this last verse of the Psalm, it's very powerful. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. And I can't think of a better finishing, a better ending to the book of Psalms than that verse. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. To Psalms, is all about praise. Each day, we ought to get up in the morning or as we go to bed at night and praise the Lord. Well, that concludes the Psalms. And we'll now continue on to our next book, which is Proverbs. And this week, we're going to work through the first six chapters of Proverbs. Now, there are a few things to keep in mind when reading Proverbs. First, the book reminds us that every person behaves foolishly in some areas of life and needs to grow in wisdom. Reading and applying the wisdom from Proverbs can help us with growth in those areas. Second, A good proverb is not designed to put an end to a thought or discussion, but instead to stimulate further thought and application of that subject. Third, wisdom is the key word and thought to the book, but this wisdom is particularly focused on handling matters that do not change over time. We might call them universal principles. Fourth, The person who learns the fear of God will be successful. And by the phrase fear of God, I mean taking God into account, being aware of his reality and presence, making decisions in view of his existence and in view of what he has revealed to us in scripture. The person who learns to fear God in every sphere of his life is going to be successful. And to that end, the fear of the Lord is best summed up in one of the most familiar passages in the book of Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart and lean not unto thine own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge him. And that passage might just be the most important verse in all of Proverbs. In fact, if there's one verse that you want to memorize in all of the Proverbs and all of the pithy sayings that we'll come across, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 might be the best one. Now, chapter 1 of Proverbs, the first seven verses, verses 1 through 7, is a prologue of sorts to the book. This is where the theological foundation is laid and a God-centered orientation is established. In Proverbs, there are three kinds of people. Those who love wisdom, those who are uncommitted, and those who despise wisdom. And the thesis to the entire book is stated in chapter 1, verse 7. The fear of the Lord is the foundation of true knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and discipline. So here at the very beginning, two great alternatives are spelled out. On the one hand, the beginning of knowledge is to fear God. 
And on the other hand, fools despise the essence of what Proverbs offers. It's almost as if Solomon is saying, if you want to be wise, then read on. If you don't, then you're a fool. Then stop reading and go on and live your short life of folly. Now, verses 8 through 19 of chapter 1, Solomon having made the point that fear the fear of God is the very essence of wisdom. He urges his son to heed the teachings of his parents and to stand firm. It seems like what is being referenced here is peer pressure to go along with the crowd. On a deeper level, Solomon might be hinting at the lure of idols. Many parents today sacrifice time and money to help their children excel in music, sports, and social activities. I hope that they are even more concerned that their children excel in knowing and obeying God's word. Idolatry may promise a lot. It might look like a safe bet. It might be exciting, but in the end, it's best to list or to, excuse me, it's best to listen to the advice of a wise person, of parents who have traveled in those same shoes before. Their desire is that wisdom would be the chosen path, not folly. Now in verses 20 through 33, employing a figure of speech called personification, the author presents wisdom as a lady who takes on human attributes. She is seen here as trying to attract attention for those who pass her by, urging them to listen to her message. Her plea is pointless and falls on deaf ears, so she changes her message to a word of threat and a promise of consequence. They have rejected knowledge, so they must now live with the consequences of choosing the wrong path. In chapter 2, Solomon continues to encourage his son to seek wisdom with all his heart, for in doing so he would come to a knowledge of God. But wisdom is not just the accumulation of information. When a person knows God, he knows how to live in integrity and righteousness. Wisdom will save you from evil people, as verse 12 says, and wisdom will save you from the immoral woman, as verse 16 says. The only way that you can be saved is to be prepared in advance. That's the point of what he's trying to make here. Orient yourself towards God and commit to live blamelessly before him beforehand. Heed the words of wisdom now, or you will lose that shield to withstand all the temptations that come your way. Now, chapter 2 here emphasizes the moral stability as a fruit of wisdom. Chapter 3 stresses peace as what happens if you use wisdom. Verses 1 through 10 of this chapter of chapter 3 stresses this fruit of peace. Look at it this way. The trust of the wise son in verses 5 and 6 of chapter 3 comes from listening to and following sound teaching in verses 1 through 4 of chapter 3. This in turn leads to confident obedience in verses 7, 8, 9, and 10. So you see how it's organized there? When you do life the right way, there is peace. But also remember that seeking wisdom is a continuous process. And sometimes we make the wrong choices and God disciplines us for it. We should not fear those times because correction is good for us. It's good for our growth and maturity. It's worth it. It shows that God cares about us. And that last section of chapter three, verses 21 through 35 is directed towards peace with others. Wisdom in relationships is vital, especially in dealing with your neighbors. Be kind towards them, he tells us. Treat them respectably. Don't resort to violence. Do all that you can to live peaceably with them. That's a, a command that Paul also gives. As much as life within you, live peaceably with all men, he says in one of his epistles. So this type of behavior is not wise and will not lead to peace, Solomon says. Now, chapter four is directed towards the value of wisdom. 
Parents can pass along the love of wisdom mainly by personal influence. Once again, two paths are laid out before this son that we're referencing here, the way of wisdom or the way of the wicked. And the way of wisdom has value. God's way is the best way. It's the best route to take through this life. Persistence is also a key part to wisdom's value. The importance of persisting in the good practices of wisdom that will lead to a better life. Success usually comes to those who keep concentrating on and perfecting the basics of their work. Just like those uh, believers today who perfect the basics of reading God's word and prayer, they will be successful. So let me just say here, we need to be experts in the basics. If we're experts in the basics of reading God's word and prayer, Solomon says, you are wise. However, this doesn't mean that success will naturally come. We must use wisdom to give attention to practical planning so we end up taking the right steps as we arrive at our destination. Chapter 5 brings the immoral woman back into the picture. She is described as a person whose beauty is attractive, but whose poison is lethal. She must be avoided at all costs. All a person will be able to do at the end of the road is to regret having pursued after her in the first place. The young son here is directed uh, to drink from his own well, verse 15 of chapter 5. That is, be satisfied with his wife alone and have no need to look elsewhere. One reason the Old Testament underscores the awfulness of marital infidelity is that participation in or even toleration of adultery on the human level was a picture of covenant violation by Israel against the Lord. They were rejecting the Lord and the Lord's love for them. The wise pursue the Lord as their true lover, we might say, but fools chase after harlots and adulteresses, which are symbolic of the evil that the world has to offer. Now, chapter 5 highlighted the dangers of marital unfaithfulness as Solomon warns his son, and he'll have more to add to that in later on chapters. But there are also other matters to be warned about, and that's the subject of chapter 6, specifically about exercising sound judgment at all times in verses 1 through 5, about not being lazy in verses 6 through 11, about being truthful at all times in verses 12 through 15, and then there are seven other practices that need no clarification in verses 16 to 19. Now, in verse 20 of chapter 6, Solomon returns to his previous conversation about adultery. Adultery is a practice that everyone looks down on because it is never necessary. It's always a lack of self-control. Think of it this way. A thief might have sympathy. We might have, excuse me, we might have sympathy for a thief for stealing bread to stay alive, but there is often not any sympathy for a man who steals his neighbor's wife. The man that does this has every right to expect the vengeance of a jealous husband. Now, that's all the time we have uh, for going through Proverbs this week. Now, Proverbs is difficult to read. I understand that. But just understand that Solomon here is focusing on, at least in these first nine chapters, is focused on wisdom, the value of wisdom, using wisdom in our everyday life, making sure that wisdom is not just an intellectual pursuit, but it's something that we are practicing every day. And when we are wise, we choose the better path. You know, we're confronted every day with choosing the two paths. Do we choose wisdom or do we choose foolishness? Sometimes we choose foolishness and God has to discipline us and get us back on the right path. It's a battle every day. It's a struggle every day. And Solomon says from his experience that you just better choose wisdom every day. And I think that's great advice for us. Now, chapter 7 continues Solomon's instructions on adultery, but that's reserved for next week. So that's all the time we have for this week. 
Again, email any questions to BibleReadingLMBC.org, and I will talk with you all next week.